Hello and welcome to Comic Book Herald's Creanitators. I'm Dave Busing, founder and editor-in-chief of ComicBookHerald.com. You are listening today to an interview I'm very excited about with David M. Boer, writer, uh, co-creator of Canto, one of the most exciting uh, kind of new all-ages launches since 2019. It's a really great work. The second part, Canto 2, The Hollow Men, was just released via IDW. The five issues there you can check out now. We're going to dig deep into those works as well as David's background and other writing. David, thanks so much for joining today. Uh, how are you doing? I'm do, doing great, all things considered. Thanks for uh, having me on. I'm very excited to talk to you and be on the show. Awesome. Awesome. Yeah, no, I'm excited to have you. So Canto is one of those books that I, I saw a lot of the hype for in 2019 on a lot of best of lists and things like that. And it's been on my radar as something I'm like, oh, I, I'll probably like that. I should check that out. Just, you know, if the sources that were recommending it. And then I didn't get around to it until the second series launched when I was finally like, oh, OK, it's coming back for more. Interesting. Let me dig in. And I've been very, very impressed. Now, in interviews and like in an essay of the first collected edition, you talk a lot about the inspirations, right? The mashup of DNA of like what goes into making this story, which is, you know, it's an all ages, um, you know, fairy tale of sorts. Right. But but modernized. And you talk about Wizard of Oz, Dante's Inferno, uh, especially. I was really interested in like the Frank L. Baum. His like his own introduction to Wizard of Oz was an interesting pull for me. That was something I went and then read after hearing you mention it and kind of talking about like the idea of a new modern kind of myth. Right. As you crafted Canto, how did you determine like what makes a good modern fairy tale? What was essential for you in in that uh, that kind of ethos, that ambitious idea of like we need a new kind of fairy tale, which is which is fun, I think, to play with. Yeah. So I think the key for me was I don't know if we necessarily set out to we set out to tell the fairy tale and we set out to tell the story that we wanted to tell. And I don't know if it necessarily was you know, setting out to tell the modernized fairy tale. I had Frank Baum's introduction in the back of my head from, I have a, I, I, I talk about this all the time and people, you know, the listeners are probably sick of me hearing about it, but, um, or talk about it, but I have an original 1901 copy of uh, Wizard of Oz and that's how I know about that introduction. And if I had that, I would mention that all the time too. So <laughs> well, totally it's understand. Very, it's a very, I've got a very personal connection to it because I was, I think 12 years old when I bought it at um, a used book sale at my local library in the town where I, I grew up in Ohio. And yeah. it still has the stamp from the library on the bottom. And it's something that I've had with me for um, X number of years. I'm not, I don't love saying that how many, but um, <laughs> <laughs> so what the, the one thing that the one aspect of the story that I really set on very early was I wanted a hero's journey and I wanted a fantasy, but I wanted to tell a story where the hero was doing something not for himself, but for somebody else. Mm -hmm. And I guess that's where, um, you know, the modern fairy tale sort of comes in. There's a darkness to it, but there's a light and Canto's that light, and it just wouldn't be the same if he was going out on this adventure for himself, if he was trying to save mm -hmm. himself. So it's the selfless journey that's fueled by courage and you know naivete about what the outside world is like. And that, to me, is what we need right now in fairy tales. We need hope. We need courage. We need selflessness, which you know is a very short supply in our modern times. So that's that's one of the decisions I made very early on in the story. And I think that's really served us well. And that's what's created the connection 
for readers to the story is, you know, you can be selfless and achieve a goal. Maybe it's not your goal that you're setting out to, to achieve, but you can get something and you can get something potentially greater than what you uh, intended to. That's interesting. Yeah, no. And, and I should mention too. So like the, the selflessness of the characters, I think is a huge part because it's not just Canto too, as the world fleshes out, like there's a lot of characters where the, in the world of these, these clockwork knights, which are kind of the, the focal group that we're focusing on and they begin and they're literally, you know, they're enslaved by the shrouded man. Right. And there's this, all this kind of magic and mystery in this world of like them not being given names and not being given personality and hope. But then as the story progresses, we see so many of them where their their like first instinct is I will give I will give up like my life to save someone else. Like there's so many and, and there's all these examples and I won't spoil anything. Um as you and and co-creator Drew Zucker have designed this world, I think that's a huge part of the charm of these characters, which are like again, like they're they're tin men and we don't see their faces, yet they're so full of life and expression. Um what what went into like kind of designing and crafting like the the emotion and sort of the pathos behind these characters that are you know because otherwise like sometimes it can be if you just literally line them up it'd be like oh there's four knights in relatively similar looks like how do i distinguish who these people are for example in the hollow men like how, how do you focus on that sort of aspect of it it's, there's two aspects to it there's uh you know character design the visuals to it and then there's personality and drew has done my co-creator Drew Zucker has done s such an amazing job uh, with character design. Mm -hmm. So in Canto One, uh, he he came to me with sort of a rough design of of what would become Canto, and it took me about half a second after seeing it in my inbox. I, I I told him I don't know who this character is and I don't know what his story is, but we're telling it. So uh, I I was drawn to it right away, the cuteness of it, but also kind of the 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 courageousness the the knightly part was mixed with this cuteness was yeah. just you know perfect for me uh, so it started out with that character design and then Drew has the the eyes his design on the eyes of Kanto and everybody else you know in, in the other knights is just exceptional and you know people comment on it constantly it's how how he conveys emotion and then my my responsibility was to give them personality yeah. and to uh give them distinct personalities in canto 2 when we introduced his friends falco richta and verada we gave them you know different color accents and we gave them different uh, like you know falco has an eye patch that's sort of greenish and right. you know uh verada is um orange and and richta is yellow and so we gave them some sort of visual uh, differentiation, but then also, you know, putting in their personalities. And you mentioned the selflessness that they all sort of have internalized. And it, it was, it's really fun for me to write that because they started out as a race of enslaved people. And they had this story about this knight, you know, going on this courageous quest to find a princess in the tallest tower of the tallest mountain. And Kanto realizes that that story is not true. Through the generations, his people have transformed it to what they needed, not what was the truth of it. Hmm. And so Kanto's people only had that story to, to be hopeful about. 
And then when that turned out to sort of betray them, they then had Canto in his story. So their only benchmark for relationships between themselves, among themselves and to the outside world is sort of Canto's example of going on that quest. Mm-hmm. So to me, it's not surprising at all in Canto 2 and as we go along to see these knights uh, you know, acting very selflessly and you know, was willing to sacrifice themselves for everybody else because that's all they know. Canto and his sacrifice is all they know. So they haven't been sort of, um, you know, jaded by the real world yet. Even if Canto has a little bit, he's kind of understood, you know, he's kind of learned that there's realism to the world that sometimes doesn't line up with your idealism of the world. Um, but you'll see as we go to Canto 3, we're, we're already in, in production on it. And you'll see that there's Canto's friends, Falco and Richta, and some of the other um, knights are starting to form their own paths. So in Canto 2, you see that they just follow. They just follow Canto because they believe in Canto. In Canto 3, you're starting to see that they're forming their own opinions. And sometimes it doesn't jibe with what Canto is doing. Mm -hmm. Um, And so that's going to come, you know, that's going to become more of an issue in the forefront as we go along. Sure. Sure. Yeah, no, I, I think that's definitely like all of what you're saying is connecting. I mean, there's a there's an absence of cynicism from the characters because of their backgrounds that is so enjoyable <laughs> to experience, you know, in a world that obviously like, you know, it, it can be easy to become very jaded. I mean, there's also there's like an awareness of, you know, the fleeting nature of life, right? It's it's I would say unusually strong for sort of like all ages myth making. I mean, you have these clockwork hearts that are literally running out of time you know, some of these characters, right? And there's, that's always kind of in the backdrop of like, we have very limited lives essentially, which is like our truth, but it's just, we don't literally have the ticking clock in our, in our chest. Um, there's no sugarcoating, like the grief and the tragedy potentially of this world. We, we kind of start there, honestly. How do you navigate writing something that can be considered all ages while still exploring these broader suite of emotions and ideas? Um, because Canto is very much, it is like that good blend of, Adults can read this. Um, younger readers can read. Like it, it fits a, a variety of palettes. Um, in your mind, I always just personally, I find that like kind of the hardest material to perfect. I don't know. It's that Pixar Toy Story magic of like, how do you actually make something that's for everyone? Uh, wh- how do you think about that? What's what's your approach? Frankly, I just don't pull any punches. Yeah. I don't. Uh, we don't. We don't try to craft it to be a story that we think, you know, nine, 10, 11, 12 year olds want. Again, we're, we're creating a story that, that we would love to read. And when we were that age, we would love to read it then. I don't think the themes that you're talking about are necessarily um, n- not suitable for all ages. Of no. course, you know, I, I think there's honestly three uh, disqualifying factors for all ages books and it's swearing, it's the graphic, graphic violence and, you know, sexual themes or or imagery or that sort of thing. Mm -hmm. And if you, if you tell a story that doesn't have those things, I think you can explore a lot of serious themes like, you know, the limitations on life and death and sacrifice and, you know, disappointments and, and how do you, you know, failure, how do you, how do you face failure when you set out to do something? 
mm. uh, and you don't achieve the goal you want. And I think those are things that kids struggle with all the time. And I think parents struggle with it too. And especially with trying to communicate those kind of um, emotions and ideas to kids. So we didn't, we didn't, we set out to make an all ages comic, but that to us just meant do not include anything that's disqualifying that parents would really raise, you know, be, be disappointed or raise their eyebrows about. Right. And I think we've done that. And I think we've gotten to the place where it can be um, appealing to a, a wide variety of audiences from kids to adults because we haven't shied away from any of the more um, serious themes that we want to explore. Sure. Sure. No, that checks out. Uh, in, in, I'm interested in hearing like, so I, I talked to um, Kazu Kabuishi not too long ago about Amulet, which is another like huge, mm -hmm. like, big book in the all ages scene, right? And he talked a lot about how it sort of developed this audience and this like, kind of important role, like with like younger readers that he didn't necessarily anticipate going into it. Is that something you've seen in terms of like audience reception and reaction where now you have like, you know, like you have like kids and parents like reaching out to you, or is it more like, you know, people super in the comic scene? Like what is the audience reception and, and kind of your experience since this book came out a couple of years ago been like? Well, the experience has been mind boggling. It's, it's yeah. been fun. The, the, the kids, the readers. So, so there's a challenge in the, uh, you know, direct comics market, which is getting kids in the comic shops, uh, sure. the kids that are, reading the graphic novels that come out from the major from major book publishers and even you know dc and marvel all ages stories they're getting them from school libraries they're getting them from well public libraries and schools and the you know single issue fl uh, floppy comic market just isn't in there yeah so the the kids that have we've been able to reach are, are usually the kids of Com, uh, you know, parents who are comics readers and go to the comic shops and their Wednesday warriors and that sort of thing. And yeah. they, they filter it down to their kids. Um, so we're constantly fighting to get, you know, just to expand the market and expand our readers. And, you know, it's a, it's a slow and steady process when you're, sure. when you're living in the direct comic market and you're not one of these major, major uh, titles. So, the feedback that we've gotten from kids and parents who have been able to, you know, read it has been fantastic. Kids, kids are, kids are responding to it and parents are responding to it. Yeah. Uh, I, I'm excited to see, you know, a kid at 12 years old who reads it and loves it and then reads it at 17 and then reads it at 24 and then reads it right. at 30. It's like when we watched uh, Drew, my co-creator Drew likes to give the example of Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles, the movie. Sure. In the early nineties, it's, you watch it when you're a kid and you take something and then from it, and then you watch it as an adult and you take something else from it. Same with, mm -hmm. for me, I'm a, I'm an eighties kid. So Labyrinth, Dark Crystal, Return to Oz, Neverending Story, all those things. Yeah. Neverending Story in particular, you take very different things about mm. sacrifice and loss and purpose and meaning of life from that movie that was fully intended to be a kid's fantasy movie, but they sure. just, I mean, there is a darkness to it that only as an adult, you really, I think can internalize. Mm -hmm. So that's sort of where I think Canto lives or I would like Canto to live would be yeah. this 
I mean, there's layers and as you, you know, different audiences pick it up, there's different layers that they can peel away and, you know, start to take some different meaning and understanding about the story and themselves from it. For sure. For sure. Oh, very cool. Uh, earlier in 2021, uh, IDW Publishing, the publisher of, of Canto, announced that they're going to have there's going to be more stories, which you alluded to here, um, beyond these first two volumes in, in the minis. So it's looking now like a four part series plus these spinoff minis. I know um, Canto and the City and Giant City of Giants is is next. It looks like in April. Uh, how I guess two part question. I'll start with the first part. Did you always, did you always envision this as a multi-part story? Like when you were finishing Canto volume one, were you like, yeah, I have more, <laughs> there's gotta be more to this. The answer is yes. Mm -hmm. So we set out, you know, comics is such a fickle business that we set out and you really have to walk a tightrope. When you um, put out a, a book, a first book, it has to be self-contained, but you also have to understand that if it's if if it's if it's not super successful, then you have to be satisfied with the story you've told. If yeah. it is successful, then you have then you have the opportunity to keep going. And you, you should, I think, you should have you should at least have some idea of where the story could go. Uh, when we set out with Canto, that's what we did. We we had a sort of quasi self-contained story that we would be satisfied if that's where it ended. Mm -hmm. And. And we always had this story cycle of three to four story arcs uh, that we wanted to tell the full meta story of Canto's search for a heart, because that's always what the story is about. From start to end, that's what the story mm -hmm. is going to be about. Um, it's about, you know, self-sacrifice to help others. And we've fortunately got had the opportunity to announce um Kanto the City of Giants, which is I, I like to call it the side quest. Kanto's yeah. side quest. Um which doesn't necessarily you don't necessarily have to read it, but you know, I, I it's it's connective tissue. So the story can stand and survive if you just one, two, three, four. Uh but this connective tissue kind of fills out the world for us and and I yeah you know really love telling those side stories. Um, but Canto 3 is uh, Lionhearted, and after Canto 2, we see uh, Canto start to prepare for a final confrontation, which includes bringing together some disparate um, allies. And then Canto 4 is called A Place Like Home, which is the final confrontation and the final I'll say choice that Kanto is going to have to make, which may be the ultimate choice. Um, yeah, but it's a story cycle, and I always sort of envisioned it. Kanto 1 was, if I only had a heart, which refers to the Tin Man from Wizard of Oz. Kanto 2 yeah. is the Hollow Men, which is a allusion to Scarecrows. Kanto uh, 3 is Lionhearted, which alludes to the Cowardly Lion, and, and it's going to sort of the metathemus courage. And then Kato 4 is a place like home, which sort of circles back to, um, I, don't, I, I say Dorothy, but it's more like the whole overall Wizard oh, of Oz story, yeah. which is, you know, what, what do you do to find your place, get back to your place in the world? I'm very embarrassed to admit I did not see those connections until you just spelled them out for me. <laughs> I, so many people have it. So many people have yeah. it. My love, it, I, I kind of love that because it's subtle. It's subtle. So when, mm -hmm. when you know, 
there's some folks that really dive into Canto and have really picked it apart and said, well, these, these parts are inspired by Wizard of Oz. These parts are inspired by Dante's Inferno. And we see, right. you know, Lord of the Rings maybe is here an inspiration here. And, you know, the eighties movies I mentioned, they're an inspiration there. Um, but, but I love that it's just subtle enough that sometimes people don't pick up on it. And it's kind of, I, if I was a reader of it, I would just think that's cool that we have a four story cycle. That's basically, you know, inspired by the four characters from the wonderful yeah. wizard of oz but we're telling our own story with it yeah no i, I definitely kind of like taking it as its own thing but I, I i do love works that have those integrated features across various literary backgrounds i think that's fantastic um and yeah thematically it, it, it helps quite a bit as well so did it was it difficult for you to set like a concrete ending on this world you know not not that anything ever really ends per se but like was that an easier choice for you to make yeah, I, I knew yeah. exactly what needed to happen at the end. And and so when we approached this and we had these different story arcs, I already had an idea of what, the way I approach stories is I, I have a, a sort of an overall idea of what needs to happen in these five or six issues and where we need to end up. Mm-hmm. And then when I get to uh, the actual scripting of each issue, that's when I put together all the, um, that's when I connect the dots and get down to the, you know, the, the um, constructing what it's eventually going to look like on the page. But all along, I, I knew, I know exactly where this is going to end. And it's, it's a, I, readers might see it coming. They might not, but I think they're going to be very satisfied with the way that we, end up wrapping it up in a way that's um, still going to sort of tug at the heartstrings. I like, I, we put out, I forget where I said this, but uh, I said, we're going to take Canto to a, a place um, that will break and then mend your heart. So mm-hmm. that's where we're aimed for it. And that, that ending is stuck in my head and how yeah. we get there, building that out, building that path out, but we know where it's going. Cool. That's awesome. That's awesome. No, I'm excited to see it. Uh, it'll definitely be a fun thing to play out over the next couple of years. I, I also quite enjoy that you're filling out the world, like you said, in those side quests. I think that's just such a, a great way to have your your core story that goes from point A to point B and then does have an ending, because that can be one of the hardest things in comics. Like, what is the beginning, middle and end of this, right? In, in ongoing as you know, superhero readers, like you're just trained that like, no, there is never an ending. Um, but there's so much value in that <laughs> from a story point. But I love these side quests. It is a specifically, am I correct in guessing that you have the most fun writing the giants <laughs> of anything in this world? And that City of Giants lets you tap into that? Because I, I love those characters, just the the back and forth and the the way they just are constantly on each other's heels. It's so funny you mentioned them because they've that's that's they're the characters that give me the most I don't I don't say the most joy, but the most amusement and they also they're the ones who give me the most heartburn. I'll tell yeah. you, they they were in one scene in um Canto the first arc. They were in one scene mm-hmm. in ish four and the Everybody, I was so nervous. I was so nervous <laughs> because I was like, is this hitting? I wrote yeah. them like um, Waldorf and Statler from the Muppets. Yeah, 
Yeah, right. That's that was my that was my um my touchstone for them. And I was so nervous they were gonna they weren't gonna hit. And Drew kept telling me, Don't worry about it. Don't worry about it. He loves them. Mm-hmm. And then it came out and every all the, you know, a lot of people commented on how much they liked them. Yeah. And so I thought, okay, well, that was first sigh of relief. And secondly, well, I guess these guys are gonna come back. Because yeah, yeah. I mean, and it's a perfect example of, you know, we we have ideas about where the story's gonna go, but I didn't really have an intention of bringing the, the giants back. Mm. And then when I started hearing from readers that they really liked them, I thought, okay, well, let's see how can we how can we bring them back? And so we had an opportunity to bring them back in Canto 2, but it was kind of, you know, almost like, you know, passing reference yeah. to them. Yeah. They 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 help Canto out, but they are sort of there and then gone. And so I came up with the the side quest for City of Giants because I thought these guys deserve more story. And it's funny as I've written City of Giants, they're, I don't know how much I want to, I can share, but I guess I'll say Canto finds them in a predicament and he has to once again, go and help his friends get out of it at his own, you know, great personal um, danger. So, and, and you'll see again that the giants have that personality and they, they just, they've become these characters that have taken on their own life, which we didn't necessarily intend, but we are fully embracing it. That's awesome. That's awesome. I love that. Yeah, no, that's, that's so funny how you stumble into that. Um, you know, almost unintentionally, but yeah, no, they're great. And I, I'm super excited about this mini series, uh, getting, getting just kind of tying a rope on Canto two. One thing I really wanted to dig into is the hollow men. You, you really dig into this value of hope, right? And it's, it's there in Canto one it's talked about, but in volume two, you really, you really clearly like hitting on that as a theme. And this idea that I think has really been dissected a lot lately by, by kind of everyone, whether it's consciously, subconsciously, it's just, it's really there in the culture um, in terms of whether like hope is enough, right? Or, or if we get up and fight again, just to maintain hope, I feel like it's, you know, there's kind of a buzzwordiness to it. And then it loses sort of the meaning of, well, what does that actually mean to people? Can you talk about your thoughts on how, hope fits into Canto and kind of what you wanted to get across. Cause I think actually the way you convey the message by the end of the story surprised me. It, 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 it doesn't do the usual. It didn't do what I expected, uh, which I appreciated a lot. What was um, your, and, what was your expectation? I'm curious. Well, I, I kind of, I think as you're talking about it initially, it kind of feels like um, there's a general sense of like, okay, Canto just keeps getting up and hope that's all we like, that's all we do it for. We just maintain hope, like, and, and just kind of that pure line. And like, it's not devaluing, like maintaining hope per se, but there's more to it in the way you kind of, in the very last issue, especially there's, there's more to like, but also this, like, like hope matters. Yes. But also more, I don't know. Am I correct in that interpretation? Yeah, I think so. Uh, hope has always been the touch touchstone for Canto. Uh, and in Canto 2, you know, it's sort of hope versus time. Like you said, if you just have hope and you keep getting knocked down and keep getting up, you know, keep getting up, if if others don't continue to carry that idea of hope on, even if they get defeated, even if they get set back, even if it looks hopeless, um, then, you know, time is the enemy. At some point, yeah. you know, it just doesn't get carried forward. And so I think that's the idea. And I think when you go forward with hope and even if you fail, 
the idea is always you look for um, the positivity. You look for the, 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 the tiny battles that you win. Yeah. And I think by the end, the, I hope to convey the idea that you keep, you know, you d- don't give up. And maybe that's the sort of theme that you've, uh, you know, touched on with a lot of different stories is that you just keep going even if you get beat down. But I think there's a, there, you know, at the end of Canto 2, there's a moment where hope is rewarded. Yeah. And Alora, the warrior, she has that moment. She She's given up. She's given up. And Canto has been the, 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 has showed her if you just keep going, there is there is something, there is something that you can achieve, even if it's small. To Laura, it's huge, but um, you know it's these it's these right. tiny um, glimmers along the way that may not be what you what you fully are intending to achieve, but you've got to take you got to take hope. I keep saying hope. You got to take hope in those small moments to continue to go forward. Uh, mm-hmm. And I think that's what you'll keep seeing in in Kanto as we go along. Is there are tiny battles, there are tiny moments that can fuel your um, desire to keep moving ahead to to your greater goal. And yeah. um, you know, I, I I I think that's it. I think that's uh, the lesson after Kanto too. Is uh, you know, there's there's glimmers. And you got to take those. You can't just leave them behind and be disappointed that you're not where you want to be. Excellent. Excellent. Yeah, no, it's very good. Um, so I, I did want to ask you too, um, as far as like your other comics works, you know, leading up to Canto, you had done uh, a work called Powerless with like proto vault, <laughs> like, like pre vault, you know, kind of before it was now, like, honestly, like proto vault. I love that. Yeah. Proto vault. <laughs> <laughs> right because you're working with the the wassel brothers i think adrian wassel in particular um with powerless and it's it's a really interesting work i it is so hard to read it now compared to i'm sure what you intended because it's set you know in a, in a quarantine world right it's set in a in, with a virus and with a pandemic and it, is that a book that obviously you couldn't you weren't nostradamus you didn't know what that was going to look like thinking about it now and the way the world has actually experienced pandemic. Is that a book you think about? Like, I kind of wish I had done a few things differently. Not that you could have known, but is that something you've thought about or, or not so much? Um, yeah, I've thought about it. I, I wouldn't do, I, I don't know if I do the story differently. There's a very, you know, I have a very clear story in my head and, and uh, you know, unfortunately I didn't f- find the audience that allowed the full story to be told, but Sure. Uh, that what I would do differently is now having experienced quarantine, like we all have done. I, I think you can. Th- there's a lot more. There, there's there's many more aspects to quarantine than I could bring. I was just thinking about this the other day. There's so many more aspects that we have lived through of quarantine that makes it very realistic that wow. I could I, that I would bring into that story uh, to sort of reflect what we've gone through. With that said, I would hesitate to even revisit any sort of quarantine virus story until we are yeah. well past where, yeah. where we are now. Because I yeah. just, I think there's some fatigue 
to quarantine, <laughs> putting it <laughs> mildly. Yeah, no, I, I think that is 100% the right, uh, the right read on that situation. Um, yeah, no, it is, it is kind of fascinating. Any kind of any story, any it, really any 2000s work that has you know, a virus or, or a pandemic kind of as a thread now, it just, it reads so differently in a way that really never could have been anticipated. Um, at least, or I guess in some ways it was anticipated because it was obviously like, it's not powerless. Isn't the only work that, that right. taps into that sort of sci-fi world, but obviously now it's such a reality that it is a challenge. Um, yeah, no, it's, it was an, it was an interesting reread for sure. I, I was curious as well. So I read in it, or I heard it in an interview, I think, um, you talked about how, you know, you kind of, you don't really have like the standard like comics background in the sense of like, Oh, I read a lot of comics as a kid. Um, you mentioned uh, lock and key specifically as a personal favorite, um, as, as something that really stood out to you. And it's, it's interesting. I can see some of that DNA, some of that inspiration in terms of like just Canto, right. There's sort of a shared, you know, locking. It's it's weird calling lock and key all ages, but it has such a family and such a heart to it, you know, and such emotional stakes. Like it, it does have that, that feel. Um, what was it about lock and key for you that sort of caught your, imagination as far as the potential of comics um or, or is that something you think about in terms of like what you want your own work to look like and and just for those who aren't familiar lock and key by joe hill and, and gabriel rodriguez is is fantastic work uh, definitely worth reading um but i'm curious like from your perspective what what was it about that comic that really sold you so it's a very basic i had a very basic reaction to it which is somebody who has not read comics uh growing up and so I didn't understand until I read Lock and Key what the potential for storytelling in comics was. I just yeah. didn't have the basis. I didn't, I, you know, I hadn't ever read Watchmen or V for Vendetta or, um, you know, uh, these these great The Dark Knight and just, you know, all these uh, beloved stories. I didn't have that background. So when I read Lock and Key, at a very basic level, it showed me of compelling, unbelievably cool world with a story about a family going through a tragedy and, you know, entering this world that they only are starting to understand. Uh, It was, it it showed me what comics could do as a storytelling medium between Gabe's art, which is, you know, every piece of art that I see from Gabe just uh, blows my mind. Yeah. And Joe's storytelling, which is absolutely exceptional. I'm a, I'm a, I'm a big fan of Joe's and uh, really love his work. So seeing that all come together in a story that I just connected to on a very visceral level showed me what comics could be. And that's sort of started me on this path. And I've revisited all those other, I, I love, I love Watchmen. I'm reading Sandman right now. I think I'm up to volume four. I love Sandman, even though you know sometimes I feel like Sandman, I, I love it. I feel like some of the stories, I'm just kind of going along for the ride. Yeah. Like, wow, yeah. I don't think I could ever tell the story. I just don't know if my brain works this way. But Neil, I am ready to go on this ride with you. And that's what I do. I just enjoy it for what it yeah. is. And the art is beautiful and all that stuff. But that's, I think that's the, 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 the most basic uh, appeal of lock and key to me, you know, art, story, everything coming together to show me this is what comics can be. And everything that I've done since then, it kind of is, 
I'm trying to achieve that. And, you know, we've got, I've got light years to go um, if I ever get there. And, but it's just having that as sort of the guiding light for me is really helpful. And I can see even now after some, you know, after experience, after powerless alien bounty hunter, now writing Canto and, I know a few, uh, some things that I'm working on that, that hopefully will come out this year. I can already see my approach to storytelling evolving and hopefully elevating and, you know, adding some subtlety to it and, you know, coming at stories with, uh, you know, stories that might be set in a big sci-fi, interesting, cool world, but yeah. the entry into the, this world is not world building. It's uh, it's finding a core relationship between characters and among characters. And I think Lock and Key did this amazingly. Hmm. It's a you know a key house, an enormous mansion that has magical keys everywhere that do all kinds of different things. But that's not where we start the story. That's not where right. we enter. It's about this family and this family tragedy and how they're dealing with it. And that's what I like to. That's how I'm starting to approach my stories now is what's the core relationship. And then you build the core world around it. And that's one thing. That's one thing with Canto is we set out, I set out specifically um, to only world builds when it was necessary. So starting Canto's story with them as slaves, not knowing what their greater world was, was was a perfect way to start it because I am not, I like world building, but I want to, I want it when the story requires it, not because I think the audience needs it. Mm. And we're so primed. It's so funny. We're so primed for world building. That <laughs> yeah. There were readers who would reach out to us and say, you know, I really enjoyed Cantor. I just, I don't feel like I learned, you know, enough about the world. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> but, you know, that's you, we learn about it as Cantor learns about it. So yeah, right. that's where we are. Well, and I kind of, that's interesting that you mentioned that because I, that's definitely such a focus in so many stories today, right? Is what is the world building? And it's, it's become a very common reader, fan, critic, sort of like analysis point of view, right? Um, but I, I, in Canto especially too, it does stand out where it's like, I, I like that sense of intrigue. I actually like the mystery and the, that sense of there's so much out there. And yes, I would be excited to see it, but at the same time, I, I would rather, I kind of prefer the mystery of it. I kind of prefer getting the bits and pieces as Canto explores it. I, it's just that kind of impossible, like what you what is in the corner of your imagination and you can't quite see is always a little more tantalizing than actually seeing it, you know? And I think Canto delivers on that um, in some pretty fun ways where like, just it's like we talked about earlier, just announcing the city of giants. I'm like, oh, sweet, more giant stuff. We get to learn a little bit about that corner of this world as opposed to like you taking time in volume one to be like, and here's the giants deal and here's a map of where they live and, and that sort of thing. You know, I don't know. There's, there's a way to do it. And in, there's no one right way, of course, but I, I, I actually like that. Yeah. That there's mystery to it. You know, I think Lord of the Rings, the, the films uh, did a, a really good job of this. Mm-hmm. The, the, you know, fellowship of the ring starts out with the, um, the narration and you know about the ring and Sauron and that sort of thing, just to set up the quest. But we enter Middle Earth in uh, the Shire, 
And our only real hint about the bigger, you know, if you, you you cut out the intro, the only real hint about the bigger world is Gandalf coming in. And you know, if there's a wizard in this world, you are to start filling in all the blanks about yeah. what's going on in the greater world. Yeah. And then they go to um, oh the inn in I forget what this town is. Things get a little darker. The world gets a little bigger. Then they mm-hmm. eventually make it to Rivendell, and you meet the elves, and you know it's just moving or expanding the world as necessary for the story, not taking time to say, oh, this is Arwen's deal and this is the history of the elves. And, you know, so I I liked, I like that world building. And I know a lot of people just want all of the details right now. Yeah. So, yeah, no, it's, it's a challenge, right? Cause it's, Mm -hmm. you want it, but at the same time it is, there's value in getting it, uh, you know, doled out over over a, a period of a story which i think is working pretty well here um so all right so you talked a little bit about what's up next um i i think with canto uh is there what other kind of works or things can you actually before i even do that i do want to ask I, if one question that popped in my head here just as we were talking because of your background you know you, you mentioned coming a little bit later to comics and actually being like into this world you know later than than some um you have a background i think in screenwriting as well if you saw canto adapted um, in another medium, uh, TV, movie, h- how would you want to see that done without giving it away? Because maybe that's something that you you are thinking about. But it would, like, what what would be crucial to you in terms of Canto making a leap to another medium? So, you know, we set out. We we always picture Canto being animated. You know, you think about that yeah. stuff when you make stories, yeah. uh, but. I think what's crucial for me is bringing along the the emotion of the story. So the DNA of the story. I approached Kanto, Drew, Drew and I both approached Kanto to tell the best story we could in comics. Mm-hmm. Um, if it if it comes to the big screen, small screen, whatever, uh, I we we would set out to tell the best story in that medium. Right. So, you know, that looks different. I, you know, I was on Twitter the other day and I, and I tweeted out, uh, retweeted somebody t- talking about a- a- adapting a-, a screenplay or pilot script to a comic to create IP to then get Hollywood interested in then adapting the comic b- back to its original format. Right. Yeah. And you know, it happens all the time. And I think the the creators who approach it as, you know, creating IP to then adapt it, you can always tell in the comic, but the creators who approach it to make the best comic they can possibly make. And then, hey, if it gets adapted, it might look different, but that's, you know, bonus. Right. Uh, that's, I, I, that's the approach to take. And that's the approach we would take. So to see Kanto, uh, come to life on the screen. Uh, I would like the DNA of the story about hope and sacrifice and selflessness and sort of naive courage as Kanto goes out into his big world um, and inspiration about that to all make it in. Uh, and and how we connect the dots is you know on the table. Cool. Cool. So what is up next for you? Um, what works do you have coming up that you would like to share or that you can share? 
So, you know, we announced Canto City of Giants, as we've talked about, and Canto 3 is coming in 2021, and then Canto 4 is coming in 2022. And then beyond that, I have um, three projects in the pipeline that we, you know, it's a little bit early to be able to talk details about those. Um, Some different publishers. Uh, they're all stories, and the, the way the way I like to um, choose what I want to do next is: Am I passionate about it? Is this a story that I want to tell, no matter what? Um, and that's the way we approach Kanto. We we said we're going to make this, whether or not IDW or any other publisher gets involved, we're going to make this. We're going to tell the story. Mm-hmm. And these new projects I'm working on are all I have. I feel that down in my gut. It's these are all stories that I would tell. I would make come to life no matter what adversity and no matter what, you know, what happens. So I guess that's a long way of saying that I would love to tell you details about all these wonderful things that I'm working on, but it's just a little early for that. <laughs> sure. Sure. No worries. Um, all right. So a couple uh, questions that I like to finish up the interviews with, uh, what are you listening to now that you would recommend? What's like your writing music or just something you're digging uh, when you're not writing? Oh God. Uh, I listen to a lot of just when when I'm writing, I put my earpods in and then AirPods, and then listen to like meditation playlists because sure. lyrics sometimes take me when when songs have lyrics, they sometimes take me out. Yeah, um, I'm a huge Alanis Morissette fan. She's got a new album. There you go, newish newish album. So I I love listening to her. And then what was the other? What was the other thing? Well, I haven't asked yet, but what uh, what are you, anything you're reading for pleasure currently that you love, uh, comics or otherwise, that you would recommend to the listeners? Sure. So I am, uh, like I said, I'm revisiting uh, or visiting for the first time Sandman. Uh, I'm reading Lock and, there was a Lock and Key in Pale Battalions Go that just finished that I was mm. reading that. On the novel side, I'm I'm a huge Stephen King fan, so I am actually rereading Lisey's story, which is mm. Stephen King's golden age for me was the mid aughts, so like 2003 through 2009, 2010. Mm. Um, and Lisey's story fit, uh, fits right in there, and I loved it. And it's going to be adapted, I think, to HBO, uh, starring Julianne Moore. And mm. I just very recently read The Outsider and then watched the show on HBO and it was one of my favorite shows of all time. So I yeah. have high hopes for Lisey's story and I just wanted to come back to it after I think 15 years of reading it and yeah. um, you know, experience the story again before I get to experience it um, through the eyes of Julianne Moore <laughs> and HBO. Awesome. Awesome. Perfect. All right, cool. Great, Rex. Uh, David, this has been a pleasure. Um, anything else you would like to, to recommend or I guess where can people find you if they want uh, want to learn more? We'll include links to everything in the show notes, of course, but anything else from you? Yeah, you can find me on Twitter at, at David Boer. You can find me on Instagram at, at David M. Boer. My website is davidboer.com. And if you're uh, into Canto and want to get updates on where things are, you can follow Canto on Twitter and Instagram at at Canto Comic. Perfect. Cool. All right. Canto is highly recommended. Again, we'll include links to everything here in the show notes, David. I really appreciate you taking the time to talk to me. And uh, we'll look for more Canto here in the coming months. Thank you so much.